Welcome to the tape ministry of Chapel Hill Presbyterian Church, whose mission is to present everyone mature in Christ. It is our desire that the tapes of these services and messages from God's Word will touch lives deeply and encourage a closer walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you wish to contact the church for any reason, please phone us at 253-851-7779 or write us at Chapel Hill Presbyterian Church, Post Office Box 829, Gig Harbor, Washington, 98335. At the end of the first section of the recording, please turn the tape over to hear the rest of the service. Now may God richly bless you as you join the people of Chapel Hill in worshiping the Lord and listening to the good news of Jesus Christ. ...is also our church receptionist, so when you hear the voice of God, the voice to which I aspire, when I hit puberty, I want a voice like that. <laughs> What a great gift he has been to our church, he and Rosemary. Welcome our young friends to God's beautiful part of the world. We're glad to have you here. We know how, for those, any of us who've ever done any traveling and performing, we know how difficult it is to get going every single day, and, and we're glad you're here. And we hope that you feel our love and our welcome, because it's our delight to have you here. And as you see, they will be performing tonight, and I hope you will join us this evening. Well, last December 31st, the world held its collective breath. <clears throat> For years, we've been hearing about the, this nemesis, Y2K. I mean, can you remember it? I mean, we hardly even talk about it anymore, but it, was, it consumed us for years, and especially the last year. And we were wondering what was going to happen when the, struck, uh, the clock struck midnight. Would the computers of the world go crazy? It was kind of the love bug uh, two months or three months earlier. And would, uh, would the systems of commerce break down? Would our infrastructure deteriorate? Would life continue as we know it? What would the world look like when we got up on January 1 in the new millennium? It was the biggest stinking non-event in all of humankind, wasn't it? The biggest non-event in all of human history. And the only outcome of it is that I've got 40 cans of Chef Boyardee ravioli sitting in my garage, and I, I hate this stuff. <clears throat> that and two cases of Top Ramen. And more toilet paper than I know what to do with. Well, there's another millennium that has held the attention of Christendom for 2,000 years. It isn't Y2K. In fact, there's a little mistake in your bulletin. The title of the sermon is not Y2K. I don't ever really want to see that name again. It's Y question mark K. Y question mark K. And the millennium that we're talking about is the one where we are wondering whether or not what it will look like. Will there be this literal thousand year reign? What is it going to be? And this morning we come to that part of the story in our journey through the book of Revelation. For those of us visiting today, we've been in Revelation since last September. We are near the end now, and I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. You see it in verse 17. We're going to pick it up at verse 19 of chapter 19. You'll find it in your bulletin if you don't have your Bibles. But if you don't have your Bibles, <clears throat> let us hear the Word of God. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast 
and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Lovely image, isn't it? And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast for, or his image and had not received his mark on their forehead or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. And they marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts truly be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For Jesus' sake, amen. I want to set this in context. Remember back to Palm Sunday when we celebrated the rider on the white horse? Do you remember that text? We talked and contrasted the, the image of Jesus who came on a donkey into, Palm, uh, into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday, meek and mild and lowly, and uh, really not taking uh, the, the role that the Zionists, the, the zealots, the, 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 the ones wanted him to take who would take over and overthrow Rome. That was one image of him. But suddenly now we have the other image that we have longed for. We who have waited for the victory of Christ over the world. And that is this image of Jesus on the, right horse, the white horse. And we saw him Palm Sunday. His eyes were blazing like fire. On his head were many crowns. He rode gallantly upon this white horse and upon his thigh was written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. From his mouth proceeded a sword which I suggested is not a literal sword but the word of God which has power with which he created the world and which, with which he decimates his enemies. 
And on that great battlefield, we saw not only this Jesus, this King Jesus on the white stallion, but he was followed by uh, legion after legion after legion of heavenly hosts, also arrayed in white, also seated upon white horses. And we realize when we see that text that we have finally come to it. We have finally come to the end of it after wading through the plagues, the plagues, the plagues. Uh, all that we've seen in Revelation, we're finally coming to the, the final consummation where Jesus will bring everything to his feet as it was promised he would do. That's what's taking place in that great uh, battle that we saw set forth at the beginning of, of Palm Sunday. And the consequences of the battle we read in the, in the first part of this morning's text. Satan's two evil sidekicks, remember them, Natasha and Boris, but their names were the, the, the sea beast and the land beast. Uh, they have uh, gone out and collected all of the kings that, will, that they can find who will array themselves against the king of kings to fight this great uh, battle. But it is pointless. And in fact, we don't even really read of much of a battle taking place. They are simply defeated by the power of the word of God. Both of the, the beasts are captured. They are tossed into the, the lake of fire, a burning sulfur fire. And the rest of the army utterly destroyed. So we have this wonderful bedtime image for our children of birds gorging themselves on their flesh. Now that was just the henchmen. And now in the chapter 20 we turn our attention to the grand poobah, the dragon, Satan himself. And we read that an angel comes down out of heaven and he seizes the dragon. He binds him in chains. By, this, by the way, it's the same language that Jesus used in the Gospels when he talks about binding a strong man before you can break into his house, before you can steal from him. It's the same language that's talked about what you bind in heaven will be bound, uh, or bind on earth will be bound in heaven. This is language that is gospel language. The power to control Satan. The, the power to overcome the evil one. And in very vivid imagery, we read of this angel that comes down and binds Satan with chains and throws him into the abyss. The abyss is a big pit. Perhaps it's the same abyss that we saw all those horrible things flying out of a few chapters ago. Remember that? But anyway, it's a place of detention. When we go to Scotland this summer, I'm going to take you to St. Andrew's, uh, well, not all of you. You're welcome to come if you can fit in the plane. But uh, those of you who are traveling with me to Scotland, we're going to go to St. Andrew's Castle. And we will go into a corner uh, uh, where we will find what's called the Bottle Dungeon. It's called the Bottle Dungeon because they carved a little neck out of the stone. And then they broadened the neck out so that you have a big hole down there. And the way that they, you got in there was they dropped you in there. It was an abyss. There was no way out because there were no other doors. And it was there that they kept some of the reformers who got so angry that they end up doing pretty naughty things to uh, the, the, the cardinal who was in control of that castle. And you'll hear about it when we go. But that's what the image is that we have here. They have dropped, this angel has dropped this, uh, this Satan, this dragon who is bound and controlled into a bottle dungeon. And he's put a lid on him and controlled him and it says it's, he is there for a thousand years. And then after this thousand year period, according to this text, he is released for a short period of time wreaks havoc yet again. You'd think he'd learn his lesson, but no. You'd think that the people who uh, were on the earth would have learned their lesson by now, but no. And he manages to rally more troops, turn themselves once again against the Lord, and ultimately they are all destroyed. Satan again is destroyed, uh, defeated, and this time he too joins his minions in the lake of fire, and, uh, and all evil is ultimately destroyed. And the last scene that we see is all of humanity standing before the white throne of judgment. And this is no meek and mild Jesus anymore. This is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And the book of life is reviewed. And if your name ain't in there, baby, you are in for a world of hurt. And that's how this text ends. 
There is perhaps no passage in all of Scripture that has generated as much controversy as this particular passage. Now, today's message is going to be a little different because there's no way I can preach it. I know you want me to go on and explain every detail of the... I don't have the time to do it. And so I'm going to have to give you an overview of the general... of the views of of the millennial issue. And then I'll try to tell you where I come down on it and then you can send me notes on those cards that Pastor Stewart told you about if you don't like what I said. Thanks for calling that to their attention. I appreciate it. I want to take a look at three views of the millennium, the issue of the millennium. I need to point out, first of all, this is the only place in all of the scriptures that the millennium is mentioned. That might come as a surprise to you. But there is no mention of millennial reign as such anywhere else in all of the Bible. And so when we are deciding what we believe about a millennium, we are basing upon a text that comes out of the Revelation, which we, I hope by now, understand to be apocalyptic literature. And you have to work to understand what is the meaning, what is John trying to say. Is it to be taken literally at this point? Is it symbolism for something more? And we have worked valiantly to try to do that. I must urge you to continue to do the same. Set aside for a moment your preconceived notions, and remember, this is the only place that it appears. And I want to talk about three views of the millennial issue. First of all, Premillennialism. I can't even say it. Premillennialism. There are a couple of kinds. Historic premillennialism and dispensational premillennialism. That's all I'm going to say about the distinctions of it. But what I will say is that it, this, it is a very complex doctrine. It weaves together Old Testament prophetic materials with New Testament passages, particularly out of Revelation and out of Daniel. And it develops a very intricate timeline. Perhaps you've seen some of them on some of the uh, religious shows on TV. A very intricate timeline. And as the name suggests, premillennialism believes that Jesus will return before the millennium. He will come before the millennium. And in the process of all of his return, there will be a seven-year period of tribulation. Remember chapter 11 where the two witnesses went out to to witness in Jerusalem? Premillennialists believe that those are two literal persons, that they appear in the middle of the three-year period of of the seven-year period of tribulation. Uh, there's a, the, the rapture of the church is involved in, in the process of premillennialism. Uh, a very important point in premillennialism is the return of the nation of Israel. In fact, premillennial thought really gained new energy when the nation of Israel uh, was reconstituted. Now, what was it? Uh, 52, 53 years ago. Uh, because it is believed that uh, in the premillennial thought that the Jewish nation will ma- be, there will be massive conversions of the Jewish nation and that they, after the church has been raptured, will set up a kingdom with Jesus on this earth for a thousand years before ultimately Satan is released from bondage and destroyed. And then the, uh, the, the final, uh, and then we will ret- return to our final glory with the Lord. So that's the premillennial position. Jesus is coming before a literal 1,000 year reign. The second position is called post-millennialism. Not too hard to figure out when they believe Jesus is coming back. They believe that the, that the millennial reign became, began when Jesus came. When Jesus was born, the, the millennium began. And it's not a literal thousand-year period, but simply an extended period of time. And post-millennialists believe that gradually the gospel is going to penetrate into the world... The work of the Holy Spirit will penetrate into the world and make it better and better and better as the influence of Christ is felt. They don't think that all evil will be completely stamped out, but there there will still be some remnants of sin and pockets of those who do not confess Christ. But post-millennialists believe that the vast majority will confess Jesus and gradually, century by century, the world will become a better and better place. Put simply, post-millennialism is utopianism. 
And after this golden age, this millennium, then Jesus will return and he will discover an overwhelmingly Christian earth and he will judge those few who have not bowed down to him in obedience and the rest of us will be taken to continue our eternal existence with Christ. So that's, there's premillennialism, Jesus comes before a literal thousand year reign. Postmillennialism, Jesus comes after this golden age. There's a third option and it's called amillennialism. Amillennialists view the world, this thousand year, as symbolic. They don't believe that there's a literal thousand year reign of Jesus on the earth. And ah, when you put it in front out of the Greek, means no. So it's no millennium. Amillennialists believe that there will not be several returns of Christ. There will not be several resurrections of different folks. There will be one return. There will be one resurrection of the dead. There will be one judgment. And one final confrontation when Satan is bound and destroyed uh, utterly. And uh, amillennials believe that this, this period of, like the postmillennials, they believe that this began when Jesus arrived. When Jesus was born, the millennium as it is, uh, as it were, was ushered in because in his ministry, in his birth, in his ministry, in his temptation, in his death and in his resurrection, he bound Satan. And that Satan even now is bound in a way that he was not before Jesus came. For the gospel has indeed begun to penetrate into all of the world. And so the kind of reign that Satan was given, free reign, has been limited by the appearance of the strong man, Christ. And, uh, and ultimately Jesus will return and finally destroy Satan in the end. And then we will again join, God, join the Lord in glory. So those are your three options. Clearly, this is a brief overview. I have studied more on this particular topic than anything that I've worked on. I was reading until about 8, eight o'clock last night, to be honest with you, on, on this stuff. Because it is very complex, very thick stuff. And I urge you to do some more reading if you're interested. Do some for me, too, while you're at it. So, which is true? How in the world do we decide? I'll be honest with you, this is a tough one to preach because you're dealing with so much dogma. How in the world do you bring it back together? What in the world are we to make of all of this? First of all, let me say this. It should be said that every one of these three positions is held by deeply devout Christians. Uh, Regrettably, this matter of the end times called eschatology has become a source of great controversy and great division among Christians. There is suspicion among one group towards the other because if we don't believe the right things about the end times, if we don't interpret the Bible seriously or literally or correctly, then we, uh, we don't have the right badge. We're not quite there spiritually. And I want to point out to you, these are not differences of views between conservatives and liberals, not differences between those who take the Bible seriously and don't take the Bible seriously. This is, these are differences between devout, Bible-believing, evangelical people, of which I count myself. So, uh, I think that we, we need to realize that when you're looking at these different views, one is not pagan and the other Christian. They are all three legitimate Christian views based upon certain ways of interpreting the Scriptures. It is reprehensible, frankly, to me, that this doctrine that is mentioned only in these six verses of Scripture is in what must be admitted is some very unusual and vivid language has become the litmus test for whether a person is truly spiritual or not. It is wrong. I think God is embarrassed by such arrogance. And I think we should be ashamed of ourselves for treating Christian and brothers who feel differently about this issue with the kind of contempt that we often do. For what it's worth, the amillennial position, the third one I mentioned, has been around the longest. St. Augustine was a great proponent of it. It probably came, started in about the second century uh, of our uh, A.D., 
And John Calvin was an amillennialist. The most popular position held today, of course, is premillennialism. And this is the position that is espoused by the Tim LaHaye Left Behind books. Uh, my wife loves those books. I know a bunch of you love those books. You've been telling me you do. Uh, they, it is also espoused by Hal Lindsey and by the recent movie, The Omega Code. I should mention to you, however, that in the, in the course of human history, in the course of Christian history, premillennialism is only about 200 years old. That sounds long to us. But in the course of, human, of Christian tradition and history, it is a very short time. Now, post-millennialists have very few proponents today. Having just left the bloodiest century in the history of humankind, I suspect it's becoming increasingly difficult to argue that the world is becoming a better and better place. Daryl Johnson, a pastor that I've quoted many times, suggests that there are some ways that we ought to sort through this issue, and I'd like to try that with you. And that is to begin, first of all, by agreeing, figuring out what it is we agree on. And all three of these positions do agree on something, and here it is. The future is not up for grabs. The future is not up for grabs. It belongs to Jesus Christ. Whether you believe that Jesus is returning pre-mill, post-mill, whether you are all-mill, whether you think he's already reigning, all three of these positions affirm the same eternal Christian orthodox truth. And that is, Jesus Christ will bring all things under his authority someday, in some way. On this we agree. I would dare to suggest, here are some things that we ought to agree on. We ought to agree that a thousand years is a symbol. And not a statistic. And I know this flies in the face of pre-mill position. But by now I hope that you know when John uses numbers, they are symbol. They are not statistic in the Revelation. Now maybe the millennium will be exactly a thousand years. But I believe that that was the way of John's telling a century, a first century group, under terrible persecution... And also a 21st century church that would be reading his letters later on. I believe it was one of his ways of telling us that, listen, no matter what the future holds, everything is under God's control. He will be in charge. He will set up his reign. Do not worry, for the Lord is on the throne. Here's another thing that we ought to agree on. Jesus is not going to become king someday. Any interpretation of Revelation which suggests that Jesus will someday set up his throne, that we are waiting for him to be king, does a terrible disservice to the text and to the truth of the gospel. Jesus isn't going to be king someday. Jesus is king right now today. Jesus is the king of kings and lord of lords right now, this very moment, whatever we see. And however long this millennium may be, however long it will be before Jesus returns at this very moment... over all things and one day we shall see him face to face when Jesus went back to heaven what did he say what was his parting shot when he left to his disciples all authority right will one day be given to me when I'm sitting no all authority after the thousand year no all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me right now therefore go he already has the authority in Ephesians Paul writes, God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. It doesn't say God will seat him someday. It says God has seated him. It is done. The king is on the throne. And even at the very beginning of this book, Revelation 1.5, at the very beginning, it affirms this. 
Jesus is the, quote, firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus is already the king of kings and lord of lords, and any teaching that minimizes that is false teaching. Proponents of all three of these positions ought to agree that Jesus is right now who he is. Now, there are some things that we ought to agree to disagree on because I don't know a way around it. What will, when will the thousand-year period of time take place? We don't know. It is simply not clear. What about the rapture of the church? Will it take place? What will it look like? Will it occur? Again, a fair reading of the texts that allude to it, especially in this, in this book, it simply does not say. What about the possible seven-year tribulation? Is that a literal period of time? Or what about whether the temple will be reconstructed and animal sacrifice reinstituted? I've got to say, I don't get that one. I don't get that one. Jesus has already paid the ultimate sacrifice. Why is he victorious? Why is he given permission to open the seals on the the scroll of human destiny? Because he has shed his blood. So I don't get the need for reinstituting animal sacrifice. The lamb of God has already been sacrificed and his blood is adequate. It is sufficient to atone for all. So I must say again on these matters, at, uh, at very best I would say that it is unclear. But here's the deal, my brothers and sisters. Here's what we must shout louder and clearer than all of the things that we must disagree on. And that is that the stuff that we do agree on is much bigger, so much grander, so much more important than the stuff on which we differ. So much more important. When will Jesus come? Before the millennium? After the millennium? Who knows? But Jesus will come again. When will Satan and his evil accomplices be destroyed? When will the battle occur? Where will the battle occur? What will be the nature of the lake of fire? Who knows? Who cares? But Satan will be destroyed and his enemies brought to heal. So where do I stand on these three positions? I like what Ralph Winter says. I'm a pan-millennialist. I believe it will all pan out in the end. Seriously, I lean towards the all-millennial position. I believe that the binding of Satan began on Christmas Eve when God deigned to set foot on this earth, when God became flesh and dared to do battle with the enemy. Remember Revelation 12 where the dragon is sitting waiting for the woman to give birth, wants to destroy the birth baby and, and he is stolen away, taken to heaven. I believe in that moment already Satan was bound. And then his whole ministry was a demonstration of the power and Jesus' authority over the evil one. His very first miracle was the casting out of a demon and the man at the synagogue of Capernaum. And again and again, demons begged Jesus to leave them alone because he was too much for them. Jesus defeated Satan in the wilderness. He defeated Satan in exorcisms. He defeated Satan in his acts of healing. He defeated Satan in his acts of resurrection. And ultimately, he defeated Satan himself when he rose from the dead, a grave that could not hold him. And I think that one day Jesus will return. One time, there will be one final confrontation and Satan will be destroyed and there will be one great judgment of all of humanity and those who have loved and served Christ will be called to glory. That is what I believe. In some respects, I consider many of these debates futile and divisive and counterproductive. It matters little to me whether there will be a literal thousand-year reign or not, whether Jesus will come before or after the millennium, whether or not there is a seven-year period of tribulation. Here's what matters to me. That when Jesus Christ comes, and He will come, 
He will find me faithful. He will find me faithful, doing all that I can to obey his commission to go and make disciples of every nation. Is that not the bottom line of the bottom line? Is that not what you wish as well? King of kings, Lord of lords. Let us pray as the ushers come forward. Father, this is confusing stuff. When we dare to dig into it, it is 